In a world gone mad, only rationality and common sense can save it. It's Andrew and Jerry Save the World with your hosts, Andrew Langer and Jerry Rogers. And now, here's Andrew and Jerry. Welcome to this special edition of Andrew and Jerry Save the World. We are Sometimes we're guestless. In this case, we are Jerryless uh, uh, today. Uh, but I wanted to do this special edition anyway. We are joined by uh, two gentlemen. Very excited to have them on. In fact, I took my glasses off for the video to, because I'm so vain. But I need to be able to read their bios. Uh, their names are uh, Jeff Abraham and Bert Kearns. They are uh, they do many things. Uh, but one of the things that caught my eye was the book that they wrote together. Uh, the show won't go on the most shocking, bizarre and historic deaths of performers on stage. In fact, I will show you all a picture of the cover of the book from Amazon. Uh, here it is. It is a fantastic book. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed reading it. Um, but they in their own right. I mean, they both have have storied careers. They're writing other books as well. Uh, Jeff uh, is an American publicist comedy historian and author he is uh represented some uh fantastic comedians uh well-known comedians like george carlin and david brenner uh he's a, been a research consultant uh conducted interviews for the archive of american television he's on the board of the national comedy center and uh we're going to talk to him about this he is completing the first authorized biography of the ritz brothers uh, meanwhile bert kearns is an american author television and film producer uh, well-known for his work, his 1999 tabloid television memoir, Tabloid Baby, also someone who was involved in some of the early uh, true crime. I would say this, am I right, Bert, uh, true crime television series? Most definitely, yeah. yeah Everything well, we'll from mugshots to current affair. Yeah, well, uh, the current affair, that's, where I, that's what I was going for. Uh, yeah. And then not that that was all about crime, but we'll talk about that. Uh, he's also a Jerry Lewis fanatic. Um, and I would say Jeff has one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, uh, rec uh, comedy record collections uh, around the world. We're going to talk about that as well. Bert's got his collection of Jerry Lewis tattoos. He is writing a biography of Lawrence Tierney, and I got to get into those stories. Uh, absolutely 100% have to get into those stories. But gentlemen, uh, so glad you could join me today. And let's, you know, it's funny because normally I don't, I don't get into uh, the bios uh, that extended wise. And I normally just jump right into questions. So why, why people dying on stage? You know, what's, I mean, obviously, obviously the, I, I can get the public fascination. What drew you to the subject? Um, I have to give credit to Donald Trump. So, <laughs> well, maybe I should say Elvis. It's a little bit of both. <laughs> Um, about 18, 19 years ago, I went to see an Elvis tribute performer at Trump 29 Casino out in Coachella, out near Palm Springs. Wow. I had a client who was also on the bill. And part of the show was a gentleman. You probably don't know his name, but you know his voice. Ladies and gentlemen, Elvis has left the building. Sure. Thank you and good night. Named Al Devoren. At the end of the show, Al's in the lobby mulling around, talking to fans and said, Al, you've done it all. I mean, he goes back to 1955 right. with the colonel. So when are you going to write a book? He said, yeah, yeah, I know. I will get to it. That was 10 o'clock Saturday night. Monday morning, I'm eating breakfast, watching the local news. And I hear Al DeVorn was killed in a car accident wow. Sunday morning. Wow. And I was just with him. He, literally less than 12 hours after I said goodnight to him, he was killed in a car accident. Yeah. 
And you think about the fleeting moments that we've all had that oh, I should have attended that show. I sh or, you know, or I saw someone's last show. And it really made me thinking, you sure. know, we all knew that Jim Croce, you know, died in a plane crash on our way to a show and Hank Williams died. And, and we all knew one or two performers who died on stage. So I said, that could be an interesting book. And I came up with a great title. The show won't go on. Sure. And unfortunately, that's all I did. Yeah. And, and I would say to everybody, I'm going to do this book. And everyone said, yeah, yeah, whatever. And Bert is the only uh, Meshuggana, if I can use an Italian expression, who said, of course. that's a great idea. We should do it. Bert? This was actually about 12 years after uh, Jeff saw that infamous, yeah. notorious concert. And uh, yeah, he was over once. I've known Jeff for about 20 years. Uh, we've worked together. We've, we've socialized together. Jeff's just been a, a good friend. He came over to the house and he said, I've got this idea for a book. It's called The Show Won't Go On. I want to do a book about performers who... who died on the way to a show, on the way home from a show, maybe even died on stage. I said, you know what? Let's do it. Let's start researching it. We both love to do research. So we started digging in. We got to about a thousand performers, literally. <laughs> uh, people who, who had died on the, uh, in a plane crash on the, after a show or in a car crash on the way to a show. And I said, you know, Jeff, I think we have enough to just do people who died yeah. during a performance on stage. And so that's what we did. We wound up with, again, over 400. We, we go back pretty far. I think the earliest we went back was, um, what, 1597. Uh, wow. 15, yeah, that was the magician uh, Kulien who, yes. tried, who caught bullets. Um, one of his assistants <laughs> got angry with him and bashed in his brains with a pistol on stage. And he was the, really the first person to die on stage. And we just kept looking and they kept going. That 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 it, it is it is amazing, and the book is full of these. I mean, and folks, it's it's fantastic stories, both of very famous people. I mean, you guys spent a lot of time. I know you've talked about this ad nauseum, both uh, Dick Sean and and Park Your Carcass, um, but but then also the more obscure ones. And my my favorite story is the one about now. I can't remember the the magician's name, but the the fake Chinese magician. Who was what from Yonkers, I guess, and, and which, which hits, so. yes, which it's close to home for me, and 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 I'm sorry, I don't want to take it away, but but he he dies on stage, and and that's not the shocking part, is it? No, well, he, you know, there was a very famous Asian performer named Chinglings Fu, um, Fu, and so this performer, American performer, decided to adopt a Asian performer and do his act wow. basically. And, you know, Europe was, you know, the world was so big, someone could be doing the act in England and somebody can do Australia and you could get away with it. You know, there yes. was no internet and things of that nature. So he was a very successful performer and he was and one part of his show was doing a bullet catch. Yeah. And he had been doing it for more than a decade. And, and it got to the point where it was, it was not the closer of the show it was something he did every now and then. And on this one night, he it was not a success. <laughs> he drops to the stage. And for the first time, English is uttered. He goes, I think I've been shot. Oh, my God. And we learned and, the mystery. And the audience of, is He done. was actually named William Robinson. Wow. I mean, let's hold on for a second. Because I, I think, you know, when, when people think of catching bullets, 
you know, they think that there's something fake that's involved. I'm, I'm, but I'm reminded of the Saturday Night Live sketch from the mid 80s in which it, Christopher Reeve was the guest host. I don't know if you guys remember this. And 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 it, it's uh, Jim Belushi as Richard Donner. And they're trying to get him to catch to get Christopher Reeve to learn how to catch bullets. And they're like shooting the gun at him and he can't do it. But but uh, Gary Kroger is able to catch the bullets. And and for a brief moment, it looks like Gary Kroger is going to be Superman, the Richard Donner Superman. I mean, literally a, a bullet catcher, a bullet catching act is literally someone firing a gun at the bullet catcher and they catch the bullets. Right. I mean, I'm not I'm not missing something here. Bert, you want to tell him the secret? <laughs> secret to successful bullet catching <laughs> is, as Penn Jillette let us let us in on it. They're probably the, the foremost practitioners of it today, yeah. Penn and Teller. He let us know that it's a trick. There, there is trickery involved, whether it's the bullet itself or the velocity of the bullet or what's actually being fired. It is a trick. Not everybody gets the fact that it's a trick, and, and, and it often goes wrong for that reason. I was always under the impression, right? And I'm, I'm sure this is the way many of them do it, where you have someone fires the pistol and it's a blank and the magician has the bullet in his mouth and he is able to pass it to, to the front of his mouth, right? It's like people who pre-tie cherry stems in their mouths and sort of pretend to, to do it that way. I mean, I, that's, that's that's what I was, is that's, that's some of them, isn't it? That's one of them. My favorite, yeah. our favorite is a guy named Ralph Biala. He was from Germany and he actually, had a, had a set of steel dentures that, that he would wear and he would perform the bullet catch. He did, he did this 3000 times. It would be fired through three panes of glass. He would have metal mesh gloves. It would go through the gloves into his steel dentures and he would catch the bullet. The problem with, with, with Ralph is that it led to headaches. Yes. I, can, I can't imagine would, why. <laughs> and poor Ralph, one day he was walking through the, through the mountains of Germany and fainted and fell off a mountain and died, which so they attributed that to the bullet catch. I, I, but, but of course, he didn't die on stage, so that wasn't on stage. No, <laughs> you know, that was another thing that happened with us is that so many people died on stage in our research that we had to come up with a bunch of we had to come up with rules. I mean, you had to either be stricken on stage, be carried off the stage, and then die within an hour or so, or you had to die on stage. We had people like the great uh, jazz trumpeter Lee Morgan. Uh, he was in a he was in a jazz club in the, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. His band was on stage waiting for him to play the 2 a.m. set. Uh, his uh, common law wife came in, and as he was walking to the stage, she shot him in the back, wow. and he dropped dead like inches from the stage. And Jeff and I said, "Well, no, he, he didn't make it to the stage. He doesn't make the book." <laughs> and we had a couple of performers who died backstage or in rehearsal. I said, "Nah, didn't quite." But to answer, but to go back to the bullet catch. Please. Yes, it is a trick. But, you know, just like stuntmen who we did not include, the people that we included were people who was an accidental death. We did not do athletes and stuntmen who literally right. walk into death. But, you know, magic should be safe. But when you are dealing with tricks that deal with gunpowder or, you know, you know, Houdini, you know, you know, jumping into a, you know, a, a river while chained into a, you know, there are elements of danger. Penn said, you know, we, we try not to do anything more dangerous than sitting in our chair. Yeah. But that doesn't mean someone did not prepare properly, you yes. know, and that's that's what happened. Yeah, we just watched uh, a trick from the 80s, Penn and Teller, um, where Penn's doing a card trick while Teller's in a tank of water. And then, of course, you know, eventually the, the card comes up and Teller's uh, 
uh, in Teller. Teller's supposed to be holding his breath for four and a half right. minutes. And then the car drive. I mean, I, I having having seen uh, uh, seen them a couple of times. That's it's uh, always always fascinating. I mean, I, I want to get to I want to get to some of the other stuff too. But you know, I'm talking about the well, I guess the two most famous are probably Park Your Carcass and 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 Dick Sean. Um, and Dick Sean's death is so fascinating because he was and tragic because he was so offbeat and nobody really knew. Right. It, it, it's it's uh, talk a little bit about, about about that and about his son's reaction. I'll let Bert uh, let Bert say, uh, answer that because he, he did a wonderful interview with Adam Sean, his son. Yeah. But if the one takeaway I can say from the book is if you're going to die on stage, try not to be a comedian. It's <laughs> we don't recommend yeah. it. Bert? <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, Dick Sean died on April 17th, 1987, uh, performing at the college in San Diego. The thing with Dick Sean was that he was a really an avant-garde performer. He would he had a show called The Second Greatest Entertainer in the Whole Wide World. And the show would open, the audience would walk in, and they would see garbage on the stage, refuse, newspapers, bricks, things like that. And they would file in, and then the, um, the lights would go down, and Dick Sean would rise from this mess. He'd been lying there on the stage for like maybe a half hour without moving before, before the show started. He would go into the intermission by, by either falling down onto the stage and taking a nap and just lying there throughout an intermission. So one of the one of the, the, the words they gave the stagehands was, if I should fall down in the middle of, of the set, don't don't run out. It's part it's part of the act, it's part yeah. of the shtick. So here, here we are in San Diego. His son is working as his stage manager and running the lights from the back of the theater. Dick Sean is, is there and he um he looks out at the audience and he and he says, Okay, how, how about this bit? Let's pretend there's a, there's a nuclear war outside and a nuclear bomb goes off and everyone in the world is killed except the people in this auditorium and I will be your leader. And with that, he did a face plant onto the stage. Wow. Dead silence, some nervous giggles, nothing. Yeah. Everybody's waiting. Uh, people say, hey, take his wallet. You know, their laughter, this and that. And his, his son's in the back and says, wait a minute, dad, I haven't seen him do that one before. And he yeah. really he hit, seemed to hit hard there. So he gets on, on, on the, on the cans to the, this, one of the stage assistants says, can you go out there and check on him? Went out and checked on him and then walked off stage. Everybody's still laughing, et cetera. And he said, and he said, what, a, well, what'd he say? He goes, well, he didn't say anything. He wasn't, he wasn't like moving. That's when the son realized that, yeah. you know, something happened. He ran down to the front of the stage as it happened. The, the, the college is it was a teaching college and there was a hospital right next door and the place was full of cardi- uh, cardiac surgeons. So they went right to work uh, on Dick Sean on the stage while people were walking up to the stage asking for their money back. That's, that is like, the thing that gets me. I mean, that's 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 tough to swallow. But but I yeah, that's crazy. It happens. Yeah, it happens. Yeah. Um, Dick, Dick Sean did. You know, and as we know, Dick Sean you know, didn't didn't survive that. Yeah. Um, and you know, what a way to go. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if you guys saw there was an HBO, I think it was an HBO Max, maybe it was even a Cinemax show last year called Station Eleven. And it opens with a production of King Lear. And and the one of the characters, the gentleman playing King Lear, dies on stage. And mm-hmm. and you know, people are very confused by this. And there is they don't know if it's part of the show and and they call for a doctor and people don't again don't know if it's part of the show. Um, but but uh, but but tragic there. It's interesting that you that you raise the issue of comedians not dying on stage because right. I mean, 
I'm sure both of you can speak to this. When Andy Kaufman, when it became known that Andy Kaufman had cancer, nobody believed him, did they? Right. Absolutely. Today, people still think he's alive. And and Bob Zamuda has done a very good job of keeping that legacy alive by doing all these Tony Clifton tribute shows and things of that nature. Yeah, Bob, and I can and I can see Bob Zamuda making Tony Clifton die on stage as as uh, as 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 part of that. Let's uh, let's shift gears a, a little bit, um, and I want to I do want to hear about this. And we were talking about this before the show a little bit, Jeff. Want to hear about your actually? You know something? Let's put it put it even further back. I want both of you to talk a little bit about how you got into this. Um, um, you know, you know, Jeff, how did you get into uh, the, the publicity side of, of comedy, Bert, how did you get in, into TV production? Talk a little bit about that. Well, Bert got into, oh, I guess I should talk about myself then. Sure, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm, uh, I just turned 60. I grew up at a wonderful time in the, in the mid-70s when there was a Marx Brothers revival. I yeah. know there, you bet, I remember when You Bet Your Life came, you know, in syndication. It was for the first time in the mid-70s. And Animal Crackers was was seen for the first time in like 1974 and Groucho did an evening with Carnegie Hall. So I remember that. And I grew up in New York with WPIX, Officer Joe Bolton. So we, I grew up with Laurel and Hardy with Chuck McCann and three, three Stooges. So I was always intrigued by all that. Um, At some point I found my true love was Jerry Lewis. I, and Bert and I will agree on this. And I think that's what we bond more than anything I don't think there's anyone who makes us laugh longer, louder, or harder than Jerry Lewis. Interesting. Wow. And and then I, you know, I was also an amateur magician, but I had with these fingers, no talent. <laughs> you know, and I said, let me try to go behind the scenes in management or agent. And I took my love of advertising and shook it up with a uh, showbiz and became a entertainment publicist. And wow. very lucky I got to represent all my idols, as you mentioned. David Brenner, George Carlin, Andrew Dice Clay on the Smothers Brothers. And, you know, I worked with everybody. So to have this love and the book, as Bert said earlier, we both love pop culture. Yes. We're both amateur historians, you know, Sherlock Holmes, you know, the, you know, you know, we would, if anyone ever found our emails while doing the research for the book, I think we'd be in a lot of trouble. When Meatloaf <laughs> collapsed on stage, I would send Bert, Hey, do you think we make chapter six? But more, but more excitingly, when Bert would find a tidbit, I would try to outdo him. I go, wait a minute, I found this though, Bert. And he goes, but did you find this article from a year before? Wow. So it was a very great yin and yang. Sure. Um, so I think that's, and we both brought distant, uh, a different interests. You know, I may have not been an, an expert on opera. You know, and Bert was able to, you know, to teach that. And I loved the comedian, so I could do that. And so it was a great yin and yang. And Bert being an investigative journalism, yeah. you know, took it to, you know, we weren't going to take, you know, wasn't like what John Ford said, when in doubt, print the, you know, print the myth, you know. <laughs> um, Bert, I think that's my story, Bert. Yeah. And then we did, we, we did. We went out of our way to, you know, to cut through a lot of the, the, um, conventional wisdom, the stories that are out there that aren't true. There's a lot of misinformation. You'll find out, believe it or not, that there's a lot of misinformation on Wikipedia out there. Yeah, oh, shocker. Believe it or not. <laughs> shocker. So we found that out, yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's so funny you say that, it, talking about misinformation, because I used to listen to 
um, a couple of uh, radio hosts who were obsessed with Elvis and obsessed with Elvis's death and the size of his colon and what they had to do. And uh, actually, I mean, I, I, I got to ask you both this. I mean, you both are probably very interested in this Elvis documentary that's coming out, uh, not documentary, the Elvis biopic that's coming out. I mean, you know, have you seen this with the Baz Luhrmann Elvis? Oh, yeah, with uh, Tom Hanks as, as, as Colonel Tom. Colonel Tom Parker, yes, yes, yes. So uh, uh, excited about this. Bert, where did you grow up? So I, I, I grew up in, in the suburbs of New York City in Connecticut. Okay. And uh, in, in Norwalk, Connecticut, originally, and in, in Trumbull, Connecticut. And getting back to Jerry Lewis, I grew up my childhood being in that sweet spot of Jerry Lewis's career yeah. around the time of the bellboy uh, around the time of Cinderfella and, and, and the Aaron boy. And I would go on Saturday afternoons to Jerry Lewis double features as a kid. Wow. And then, and then in the summers, we, 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 we'd, we'd write into MDA and they would send you packets and kits on how to have your own carnival in your driveway. And we, yeah. I would have muscle just carnivals in, in, in my driveway. And as I grew up and got a bit older and a little bit more cynical, I was in love with the telethon. And when VHS started coming out, I would be the person that would, I'd have friends all, all over town who were, who, who were given certain hours they had to record for me. So I would wind up having, you know, the entire telethons recorded wow. on VHS and keep them. See, it's funny. I didn't start appreciating Jerry Lewis until much, much later. And, and so I'm a little bit younger, slightly younger than you guys grew up in Westchester so we all grew up watching the same TV. And so when Channel 5 would show the telethon, I was, you know, I would just get really frustrated because whatever I was watching, the cartoons or what have you, I, could, I couldn't watch. It was only years later that I began to really appreciate uh, the genius, but also fascinated by the persona of, of Jerry. I mean, the, just, you know, the, 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 the ego is probably an unfair word in all of this. But, you know, because you, you he is a, a recognized genius. He, he invented, you know, whole technologies or, or whole techniques for making movies. Um, and, you know, I would say The King of Comedy is one of my favorite films of all time. Um, but, yeah, so I, I, I just I, I get where you guys are coming from. I, so my my New York City TV, you know, PIX, WOR, Little Rascals in the Afternoon, um, you know, Bugs Bunny on Channel 5. Um, Courageous Cat and Minute Mouse on Channel Nine, all, all of those things. I I, um, I don't know about you guys, but and, and my my younger brothers make incredible amounts of fun of me for this because I will go on YouTube and pull up old videos of WPIX, and then we're talking commercial breaks. We're talking the intros to the the movies on on PIX or Channel Nine. Uh, and I will watch those videos incessantly because they remind me of my child. I mean, uh, am I alone here? Do you guys do any of that? Oh, always. I think right? you're alone. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what was that, Bert? Go ahead. <laughs> no, always looking at that. I, yeah. you know, I was lucky enough. You know, again, I, I started out in, in journalism, in print journalism. I was a, a newspaper reporter and I was an editor of suburban weeklies in Connecticut. And then I moved to New York in 1981. And I was lucky enough to get a job on Channel 5 News at WNEW. Wow. And I worked on the 10 o'clock news. And that's how I really got my, my start in, in journalism. I started out working on the assignment desk and listening to police scanners and, and leading crews around the town. Became a writer and a producer. Um, then I worked for about five years at News 4 New York, WNBC, sure. TV News in Rockefeller Center. I worked for CBS Network News. And then in 19... 
89, I was kidnapped by a group of Australians. Uh, these were the people that Rupert Murdoch had hired to take yeah. over Channel 5 News. I became WNYW, it was, it, was, it was Fox. I went over and worked with, with them and then wound up breaking all sorts of laws with these tabloid people and wound up in Hollywood uh, on the Paramount lot uh, running the show Hard Copy, which we did for three years. But the highlight of my of, of working at A Current Affair in New York was that you could basically cover any story you wanted. The whole yeah. idea was you wanted, we wanted to set the agenda and cover stories that other people weren't covering. And if you want to do a feature thing, you can, people would, would say they want to go golfing in, in North Carolina at some, at some golf course. So they would find a murder that took place nearby. Of course. Of course. They cover the murder and they go golfing. Well, my thing, of course, was I wrote a letter to Jerry Lewis. Wow. And I said, Jerry, my name is Bert Kearns, the managing editor of, of the show Current Affair, would really like the honor of following you around, you know, as you prepare for the, for the telethon. And um, what, what, actually, what I, the, the reason that I, I got it were, were two things. One was that back in the 80s, I used to spend my weekends going to record stores in New York, in Greenwich Village, and finding old copies of the album Jerry Lewis Just Sings. It was a, a, a standards album he recorded sure. back in the 50s. And I had about 20 copies that I collected. So, well, time out for a second. Was... Hold on, because I, I, I heard you say this in another interview. And, and explain this to me, because I understand maybe buying one, maybe buying two. I mean, this is like assassin levels of buying multiple copies of The Catcher in the Rye. Why so many copies? Why were you constantly buying this one you album? Just want, you just want more copies of it. Okay. I mean, I would even do, do this today. I would, I would get copies of the book Last Exit to Brooklyn, okay. you know, which was Andy Kaufman's favorite book. And I remember I saw Andy Kaufman at, at, Car at Carnegie Hall, like Carnegie Hall concert. And wow. after the show, he, he stood on the steps in a bathrobe and people were giving him copies of the book uh, Last Exit to Brooklyn because that was his favorite book. Wow. But anyway, I didn't mean to backtrack. But no, no, it's fine. I was going to interrupt. I just, I was, I, know, while, while, I was while I was at NBC, yeah. uh, a good friend of mine was the assistant director at Saturday Night Live. So we'd always get to go and sit in and see Saturday Night Live if we wanted to. She told me, she said, I've got this brief gig I'm doing. I'm going to be the assistant director for the Jerry Lewis Telethon at Caesars Palace. This was 1987. Okay. I said, please, please get me a job and I'll do anything. Production assistant, I'll be a runner, I'll get coffee. Please get me a job. She goes, great. So I got a job working for the Jerry Lewis Telethon in Vegas in 1987. They brought me into the trailer. Everybody's working. This is in the days like before the internet and computers or typewriters. Sure. Said, okay, here's the new guy. He's, your, he's a production assistant. Okay, here's your job. They hand me a stack of papers. It was the script for the show. It was huge. He said, this, this job comes directly from Jerry. This is unbelievable. This is great. Okay. What I had to do was at the top of each script page, it said 1987 muscular dystrophy telephone. <laughs> I had to take white out and white out muscular dystrophy and type in Jerry Lewis. Wow. And I was almost crying. I'm like, oh, this is so, this is so wonderful. This is so great. So I used it. And I, and I told you, I told Jerry, I said, you know, I've been here in 87. And I collect copies of Jerry Lewis just saying, so I want to give you a copy. I get a call at my desk at a current affair. Bert, this is Jerry Lewis. <laughs> Even I don't have a copy of Jerry Lewis <laughs> just sings. Wow. Yes, please come. You can have complete access. You can do whatever you want. And um, the only thing is, I don't want to do a five minute segment. I want a bigger, I, Jerry, you get the whole show. We'll, yeah. we'll do it. So I wound up spending a week with Jerry Lewis 
uh, preparing for the telethon and you know stayed up with Jerry for the whole telethon in '89. So, you know, you know, there's always this phrase, and I want to ask both of you this, you know, be careful meeting your idols, right? Because you never know when they're going to disappoint, you know, they'll say something. I mean, were you, I mean, it sounds like this was a total 100% well worth it both times sitting down with Jerry. I mean, obviously you're, you, you have festooned your body with tattoos of Jerry Lewis. And then Jeff, I want to, I want to ask you this, but, but I mean, but Bert, I mean, so any moment of, of, of disappointment? No, he was. First of all, I, I, we had a camera crew following yeah, him, oh, around, that's a good point. which was unbelievable. And I would, I would just walk with them, and he gave us Jerry. He would make jokes at every moment. He'd have a tantrum because he didn't have his Eskimo pies and his fudgesicles in, in his in his thing. He would, <laughs> he would scream at his kid, but he would do shtick and he everything he would he was he was he was rude. He cursed. He did everything. He was Jerry, hundred percent. So there, there was awesome. no way he could he could let me down. And then finally, you know, I got to sit and do an interview with him and it was, uh, and he sat and, and it was supposed to be like a 10 minute interview went off for about 40 minutes. And he was just, he was great. He was, he was the perf. He was, he was Jerry Lewis. You that know, is- after Jerry died, I, I made a list about the number of times I either met him or saw him in person. It was about 25 times. I mean, I even, you know, was in Jerry's home and I interviewed him in the same room where Seinfeld did comedians in cars. Oh yeah. Um, and I had a great, I interviewed him for my Rich Brothers book because Jerry's idol was Harry, the great Harry Ritz. And he could have not been nicer. And I was backstage with him when they were introducing the documentary, The Method to the Madness, which yeah. I did the PR for. And, and I saw the ornery side. So I've seen most, but it, I'm not going to be one of those people. At least he was nice to me. Sure. He was wonderful to me. <laughs> oh, that's good. And, you can separate the man from the artist and this, that could be a whole other show. Um, The year after George Carlin got the Mark Twain, I got to work with on the Bill Cosby, Mark Twain. And I spent a day with him and he couldn't have been any nicer. And also I will say with somebody who has one of the largest comedy record collections, um, his albums are essential. They're still the greatest comedy noah and you know and you know buck buck and um junior barnes you gunky and all our classics and we should not take that away sure. you know i, I don't so, know if no, you... jerry, jerry to me was a, a pussycat as he would say i don't know if either of you have ever been i don't know if you've ever been to dc and if you've been to dc if you've ever been in ben's chili bowl then the, oh yeah right. <laughs> they so, took his, wall, his photo off the wall well yeah they did so i'm very close to the ben's chili bowl family I, I, we're all all many many years in fact i i uh one of my proudest moments was during the obama inauguration in 2009 i was working i <laughs> I they asked me to come in. They said it's an all hands thing. Everybody in the family's coming in. I worked as a bouncer at the at the Ben's next door, um, but I know it was very hard for them for that family when they had to sort of go down that road because the two had been uh, it linked for so long. You know, uh, uh, Cosby used to say that part of his listen among the things that were in his contracts uh, when he would play in D.C. he had to have two half smokes from Ben's Chili Bowl. Um, uh, delivered to his dressing room wherever he was performing. He um, he showed up at the 50th anniversary, no, the 60th anniversary of the bowl, or maybe it was Ben Ali's 80th birthday. doesn't matter. Either way, he shows up and he's on stage and everybody else is dressed to the nines and he comes out in a tracksuit, which right. I thought was, I thought was rather, rather, uh, rather fitting. 
Um, gotta, gotta ask this, Jeff, the, the story. And then, and then Bert, I want to talk to you about buddy Hackett. Um, uh, um, I want to ask you about, about Wayne Newton and Perry Como. No, uh, oh, Paul Anka, Paul Anka. <laughs> Paul Anka. Yes. Sorry. Of course. Paul Anka. Um, I just saw on PBS It's probably airing around the country on your local PBS station. Paul did a, um, a concert, I believe from the Smith center in Las Vegas, and he still has it. I mean, I wow. guess he's given, um, 78, 80. I apologize. I don't, but he's give or take that age sure. more or less. He has it. He's brilliant. A friend of mine saw him in Chicago a number of years ago said, Oh my God, one of the best performers. So hands down. So, we Paul had an album called Rock Swings where he took rock songs and gave it a big band arrangement. Wow. And he got great a critical acclaim. He did the he did Letterman, he got the New York Times, NPR. Unfortunately, we wound up doing the sequel, the follow-up. Oh, wow. Which oh, wow. you never you, you're not gonna get yeah. the New York Times again. You're not gonna sure. get, you know, Letterman goes, Oh, if he wants to sit in with a band, you know, <laughs> when we cut to commercial. So he's not happy. Yeah. I don't want to say a guy five foot three is no, has a no, no, Napoleonic uh, complex, <laughs> but I wouldn't be surprised. Um, also, I think every singer has a Tom Jones voodoo doll. They go, okay. God, why, wait a minute. Why is he on every show? You know what I mean? Why is Tony Bennett hosting, you know, on the MTV awards? I'm sure. just as good. So, so well, hold on, hold on, Jeff, Jeff, yeah. time out for a second, because I was I, I had this conversation with somebody fairly recently. It's the same thing. Listen, it's certainly the same thing with radio hosts. But most importantly, it's the same thing with comedians. Every comedian is sitting there right at the at the comedian's table, looking up on stage and saying, I could do that joke better. I could do this better. I mean, that's and all the comedians had that with Don, all the older guard. Yeah, the um, had that with Don Rickles. You know, Don yeah. Rickles, his publicist was a dear friend of mine, is a dear friend of mine. And Rickles was on every talk show, yeah. you know, and he, and they would say, well, Johnny, you know, stop having people on because of age. He goes, he's still booking Rickles. <laughs> so they all had that same voodoo doll of Don Rickles. Yeah. So anyway, we, anyway, sorry, we're, we're representing uh, Wayne Newton and Wayne Newton was a, was a so nice. Couldn't be any nicer. He was on dancing with the stars. Yeah. So we're promoting that. So somehow my boss is on the airplane with with um, Anka's, I think it was girlfriend or soon to be wife, and he so she lets it slip. We're representing Wayne Newton, and <laughs> Wayne Newton calls me, calls her office, goes, "What's this I hear? You represent Wayne Newton?" And I'm like Jackie Gleason, hum the hum the. How do I answer that? And it's the longest pause. It must be. Sure. And he says, "I'll take that as a yes." And he goes, and I'm going to have to bleep myself. He goes, no, no, go ahead and say it. Oh, okay. He goes, America is going to uh, see, oh, America is going to see that the, uh, America knows that the, the fucker can't sing. Now we'll all see that he can't, no, America will, will know that the fucker can't sing and dance. Something dead out of fact. That's so funny. Oh, and I was like, oh my God. You know, there's that famous bootleg cassette going around a tape of Paul Yang yelling at his band yes. for not having, oh, yeah. you know, clean shirts and you yes. know, playing missing notes. And Paul was, was asked about that on Terry Gross at the end of the interview. And he's very proud of the fact. He goes, sure. look, I'm on stage. It's my name. And when they did Oceans, the last Oceans movie with yeah, Andy Garcia, 13. it might've been the girls movie. Anyway, yeah. they took 
his script from that oh tape. God. And Paul was very proud of it. They, wow. Andy Garcia is talking to all his minions the way Paul Anka talked to his band. That's astounding. Wow. So, there's wow. It, but I, I ran into Paul years later at a book signing and he was nice. So it, it depends on the day, but uh, yeah. So sometimes you're right. Maybe he's not best to yeah, I'm, work I'm, with your idols. Let's I'm, put it I'm, that way. I'm trying to think, you know, it's so funny. Um, um, yeah, I had a, I, when I was still doing policy work, um, I had a, a friend of mine who got dressed down by a cabinet secretary. Like literally he'd said something, but he was working outside. He got called into the cabinet secretary's office for a meeting and the cabinet secretary dressed him down and he came out and he called me. He says, Andrew, I don't know how I'm, how I'm going to be able to work in this town. I said, I said, Mike, you had a cabinet secretary just take 45 minutes out of her schedule to yell at you. I mean, that, that's, that's the best story ever. And he actually did wind up leaving the political and policy world, which is too bad, but it's, it's, it's those, those little instances. Um, and, and Bert, I got to ask, so this now I got to ask you about, about, about Buddy Hackett and, and, and what was a comedy court? This was about, how did he about 15 years ago? Yeah. Uh, we had the idea to do a comedy version of like Judge Judy. Explain this, explain this concept to me because this, I want to, I find this fascinating. Well, you, you have um, Judge Judy. Yes. Who, they bring people, people in and they bring up small claims cases and she decides. Yes. In this case, we would have the wisdom of Buddy Hackett as the judge. And, and I he love would, this. And, he would, and, and, and we talked to Buddy about it. He would say things like, well, yes, let's say someone is, uh, they have a lemon tree and some of the lemons are in there in your yard and you take the lemons and they want you to pay for them. Well, I'll decide, you know, maybe you, you get the, anyway, Buddy took it very seriously. What happened was, um, Peter Brennan, who was um, my mentor and my, my boss in the tabloid TV days, became the executive producer of Judge Judy. Uh, so he ran the Judge Judy show. I came up with the idea of doing a comedy version of it. He said, oh, that's great. Let's, let's try it. And we wound up, we, we started, I believe, with Joan Rivers. We were going to do something with Joan Rivers. That didn't work out. And then here comes Buddy Hackett. So um, my agent at the time arranged us to have a meeting with Buddy Hackett at his house in Beverly Hills. So we arrived there at, you know, probably around noon and a place it's, it's, it's in the flats of Beverly Hills and every window was, was, was totally shuttered. It was like, yes. and we, he lets us in and the place is totally dark and we're hearing a lot of barking, a lot of noise, noise, et cetera. His wife had basically turned half of the house into an animal shelter for, wow. <laughs> for, abandoned, for, for homeless dogs. I've got shades of Doris Day going in my head, but go ahead. The guest rooms, the, the, the rooms, et cetera. But Buddy had one section of the house that was his, a giant family recreation room in which he had a bar. He had a pool table. He had display cases for his golf clubs, display cases for his guns. And of course, everything was shut. So it was permanent midnight in there. And it was noon. We went to Peter and I and our, the preserver, uh, Allison Holloway was, was with us. And we sat down and but he immediately asked us what we wanted to drink. It was noon. And we said, well, okay. he made us vodka. Uh, Ricky's, I think, he was, that was his big wow. thing. And he sat and he talked and he began to basically perform for us. He told us jokes. He read, us, he read from his book of poetry that, that, he, that he had written. He read the letter that he wrote to, to Bill Cosby on the, when his son Ennis died. Yes. And he cried as he, as he read the note. And then he told us some more jokes and he gave, gave us some more drinks and then said, okay, here's what I want out of nowhere. He said, here's what I want. I want this amount of money. 
I have, he had this very busty, tall uh, female that he wanted to be the, the, uh, the court um, bailiff. Okay. And he wanted his son, Sandy, who I later met as a great guy. He wanted Sandy to be part of it as well. Sure. And, and he said, and I won't work with any assholes and that's it. And as a matter of fact, why don't we not do the show? Why don't we just meet here once a week and, uh, and drink? Yeah. And we, you know, we, we said, great, you know, that's terrific. So he, he went along with, with the show. Um, his other, the great thing about Buddy Hackett's life at the time was he would get up every morning at four o'clock in the morning and drive to Palm Springs so he could golf when the sun came up. Wow. And then he, would, he would drive back to, to Beverly Hills. Wow. And so he had, he had this like you know, nightclub uh, life even then. Sure. Um, the, show, the, the show went kind of, nothing happened with it for a while. And a few months later, something did happen. Somebody was interested in it. And I called Buddy. At this time, he had just signed on to that show that Jay Moore was on, on, uh, on Fox. Oh, the, sports, the sports action, show? It was, it was one where they swore and they bleeped out the curse words. Yeah. Called action, he, played I think? A, yeah. He, played, he played a studio boss. Jay, That's Jay right. Moore. Well, anyway, Buddy Hackett had just gotten that, that, that gig. And I said, buddy, guess what? They're interested in our show. We're going to have some meetings. And he's like, well, no, I'm not interested. I'm like, no, buddy, really? Remember, we were at your house. We had this great meeting. You signed the, the autograph to the book for us. We drank. We wanted to do the show. Go fuck yourself. Excuse me? <laughs> like, Go fuck yourself. And I hangs up. And I said, a guy named Buddy just told me to go fuck myself. And That's awesome. That was the end of my, my buddy Hackett dream. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I don't know if you guys remember, but there was that a couple of summers ago, there was that summer replacement show. God, it was, it was, it was a, it, Jerry Seinfeld was on one episode, but it was also Tom Papa. And it was like a marriage counseling thing. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, it sounds eerily like this. It. What was that? What yeah. was that? I think Seinfeld produced the Tom yeah. Papa show, like a marital court thing. Yes. Yeah, it would have been, you know, it would have been a lot of shtick and buddy, you know, buddy doing a lot of improvising with people. Hey, uh, I have a question for Bert. Bert yeah. was uh, is Buddy Hackett the only comedian who had a gun uh, fascination, yeah. or can you think of any others? Well, Jeff and I were lucky enough to attend the the Jerry Lewis estate auction. Sure. Uh, in Las Vegas. We, we drove from LA to, to Vegas to be at this auction. We went over a couple of days and we had certain things we wanted. We were really interested in getting, Yeah, but we had to wait f- for the first 75 or 80 lots to be called, which were all Jerry Lewis's guns. Wow. Wow. <laughs> 42, a, uh, a Luger, lot 39, a rifle, you know, and, and we, with a uh, gold-plated handle that says Super Jew on it. Sure, of course. Super Jew. I love it. That's right. I, I forgot about that, that moniker. A lot of guns, a lot of guns. Jerry. Yes, yes. It's not all Charlton Heston, certainly, um, <laughs> in the end. Um, anyway, I've got, I've got stories there, too, but, uh, um, um, but none that I could tell yet. So, Jeff, let me ask you this. So you got this collection. Do you have a holy grail? Something you're looking for in, in, in terms of comedy albums? I almost, uh, it's funny, you mentioned Buddy Hackett. So yeah. someone posts on a Borscht Belt uh, Instagram um, page, a album, Buddy Hackett tells Yiddish jokes. Oh, my God. And I'm going, I got to have this. How yeah. do I not know about this? And I email the person. This is how scary my day is, right? I'm, a, I'm, looking, I'm on a I'm on a Borscht Instagram page. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm I'm totally tracking with you here. I email the person. I said, "Oh my, I love your page." Da da da. 
do you have a copy of this album? How do I get it? And then I'm thinking, how do I not know this? Yes. And I Google it, nothing. And then I realized I was taken. It was this famous person. I'm drawing a blank on his name. He does these fam- f- famous faux ads. No. Oh, um, yes, of course. Yes. It's a, the one you, yes. yes. The Mickey Rooney uh, uh, potato, potato house. Yes. Yes. And, and because it was so small to blow up, I couldn't read it. But then I finally blow it up and I see it says in the Hal Gurney Orchestra, <laughs> special guest, uh, Harvey Lembeck. And I go, what an idiot. So I, oh. I email. She, so she says, I, let me ask the family. Let me find out the person sends it to me. And then I said, I think it's fake. Yeah. And I, I go to the artist. I go, is this yours? He goes, oh, my God, I did that years ago. Where oh, did you so find funny. it? And then I had to tell her. She goes, are you sure? I go, I said, this is the note. He says, yes, it's mine. So I thought I had a holy grail. Wow. Um, so, no, the point is, I'm at the point now. I lo- I'm looking for, I'm finding and looking for regional one hit wonders. Some guy who was a local guy in okay. Rooster Mass that you would only have a cop find the album because you saw him at the Ho Ho House sure. in Rooster and it was signed. You wow. know, those kind. So, like a friend of mine says, Hey, do you have this album by Bob Jones from North Carolina? I go, I, I just screwed up the punchline. You have this album by Bob Jones? I go, No. <laughs> Oh, he's a disc jockey in North Carolina. Well, my friend was calling me for North Carolina and they had a truckload. So that's what I'm looking at. Those are the things that makes the chase funny. Like Lenny Clark, the comedian, when he was a local guy, hand pressed, you know, 500 albums, sold them out of the trunk of his car to shows. And someone just said to me, hey, do you have this Lenny Clark album? I said, no. He said, if you see it, people ask for ridiculous money or somebody wants it for a dollar. Yeah. I did find years before I started working for George Carlin, he did, he performed in 1963 at a golf tournament and they pressed an album for the people who attended the festival. I got it for $5. Wow. But no, but the best part, it came with a note from his agent to the Merv Griffin show. Please book. We'd like you to listen to this album. Consider him for the Merv Griffin show. I know it's only an album, but he makes great funny faces. He'd be great for the show. I showed George the album. He signed it. This is rare, but he said <laughs> this is this is what got me on their Merv Griffin show. That's so true. you can't. Those are the uh, the moments that you just you you wonder what? how much of this stuff was in Joe Franklin's office. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I just I sit here and I wonder about this. It's funny because I, I so my wife and I went to college with Patton Oswalt. Oh yeah, and he performed, um, and it, oh, it was great. He performed, I want to say, spring of '91 um, at William and Mary, and wow. I wish I had a recording of that because it was just fantastic. So let's let's turn to the books. I, I mean, um, uh, Bert. So so is Wikipedia right or wrong? Are you working on a book about Lawrence Tierney or no? Uh, I have a book about Lawrence Tierney. Lawrence Tierney, Hollywood's real life tough guy. Yeah, which is being released in November. And actually, Patton Oswald is in the book. Oh, is he? Uh, he has a terrific <laughs> Lawrence Tierney story of having, he was sitting in the, uh, I'll give it away. Uh, Patton was sitting near the back row of the uh, New Beverly Cinema. That's the wow. cinema that sure. shows old movies. Uh, actually, Quentin Tarantino just purchased it yes. uh, recently. 
It's, it's an art house. And he was watching Citizen Kane when suddenly there was some noise behind him and some, a lot of disturbance and somebody's grumbling and making noise behind him. And, and Patton turned around and say, shut the, and saw it was Lawrence Tierney, old Lawrence <laughs> Tierney, all six foot, 250 pounds of him sitting there going, talking to the screen. Oh, what the hell is this? Jeez. I'm <laughs> yelling at the characters on the screen. They're shut up. No, don't sing. You, you suck. And he, he came in the middle of uh, about 15 minutes in and Lawrence Tierney talked to the screen for 20 minutes while Patton sat there totally afraid to, to move to move a muscle. Or uh, some kid walked in, in the, about 20 minutes later and said, Larry, you got to get up. We got to go. The car's here. And Larry stood up and said, you know, I never seen this cocksucker before. It ain't half bad. And walked out of, out of the that, theater. That is and, an amazing story. Holy and, cow. Uh, and Patton said, he goes, you know, he, he had a face like an Easter Island statue, but it was like seeing Bigfoot. It was my, it was the most wonderful Hollywood experience I've ever had. But anyway, that is uh, amazing. Oh, now I can't wait. I can't wait to, to, to get the book when it comes out uh, in November. That's yeah, I'm, for, I'm sorry, go ahead. For, for folks who don't know, Lawrence Tierney was a, um, a tough guy actor back in, in the 1940s and fifties. He, he became an overnight star playing John Dillinger in, in the gangster movie Dillinger in 1945. And then he proceeded over the next five or 10 years to drink, brawl, yeah. fight his way out of his career, destroyed his career, went, went, went to Europe, kept coming back, having little roles here and there. And then in the, about 20 years later, in the late 70s, he made a comeback, uh, looking entirely different. By this time, he was old and bald-headed and, and yeah. put on a lot of weight. He appeared in the movie Arthur, in a, famous, uh, a, a famous scene in Arthur where um, Dudley Moore comes to a diner to propose to Liza Minnelli sure. who's working the counter and he's the guy sitting next to uh, uh, Dudley Moore saying where's my role and they're going shut up and they're yelling at Lawrence Tierney um, he then of course really hit, hit it big as uh, in Reservoir Dogs yes of course it's Joe discovered by Tarantino so it's a great story put in uh, put in <laughs> where's your tip why don't you tip <laughs> sorry <laughs> right exactly yes Oh my God, that's that is that is amazing. And and Jeff, you've got a book about the Ritz brothers. Yeah, which Bert and I is. Um, I've been working on this project for uh, too many years to mention. And then Bert's going to uh, give it life and breath. You know, oh, nice. uh, because it, it's an extension of everybody who's ever loved Jerry Lewis or Danny Kaye and Sid Caesar and Mel Brooks, who all called the Ritz brothers, or especially Harry Ritz, the funniest man. Yeah. And it's a, their life story. They had an amazing career that spanned, it, spanned uh, more than 50 years from um, Bordeville to the early days of cable television. It's, you know, and I just I just remember the scene in in Mr. Saturday Night when uh, when Buddy Young Jr. is trying to pimp Helen Hunt on the uh, on, on on these famous comedians at the uh, at the Friars Club. And, and she had no idea who any of these people were. And, and he's like, they're everybody. I mean, this is this is why you don't get me. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jeff. Right, and Bert, and uh, and it's nice to know that line is now is uh, still used in the uh, play, Mr. Sinai. You know, you know yeah. Billy was of that age where he yeah. would have seen them in their movies. Um, but it's really the all those guys who were born around 1926 when they were 10 year old kids all went to the movies. Yeah, you know. You know, Larry Gelbart and people like that, you know, they all said, oh, my God, what is it? What is going on here? This is different. Well, and, and by the same token, right? I mean, the three of us, we all grew up roughly the same area, exposed to roughly the same TV shows. I mean, you guys were also going to the movies and seeing a lot of these things. 
but you get these kinds of influences out there and 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 it it becomes it, it's the common it's the common thread right you know uh, i'm sorry jerry's not on with us tonight because jerry grew up in the bronx as well and so that's one of the areas where he and i sort of bond like i would ask you and well we'll ask you guys so uh did you have a favorite wonderama host right you know where, where you a uh, sunny, sunny fox, fox. yeah or, or like for me it's bob McAllister. i'm sorry yeah, go ahead jeff yeah, Sonny, uh, Sonny Fox means nothing to me. In fact, there were always two different Sonny Foxes. When one died, you would go, which one died? But no, Bob McAllister was my guy. Yes. And, you know, you talk about, you know, meeting idols and things of that nature. One of the first celebrities I met when I came to Los Angeles over 40 years ago was Chuck McCann. Okay. And I grew up with Chuck McCann. Yeah, and that was like when my parents saw Cary yeah. Grant at a movie premiere. I said, <laughs> that was my Cary Grant. This is the guy... I grew up with him and get to know him and to be on a first name basis with him. So that, yeah, he, that was my guy. That That's amazing. It's, it's, it's funny about, we have a, you know, part of the family lore, another cousin of mine who won a, a, a prize closet package from soupy sales by some, some uh, she, she was able to come up with some punny title um, rubber band plays snappy tunes. And that one or a, uh, a, a closet full of toys that that that, that uh, I think are still in my aunt's closet in the Bronx. So um, yeah. uh, I appreciate that. So, so gentlemen, the, the book uh, once again is the show won't go on. Uh, it is a fantastic read uh, to say the least. Uh, the authors are, are Jeff Abraham and and Bert Kearns. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so very much for joining me tonight. Oh, thanks for having us. Our pleasure. Can I leave you with one? Please. Sorry. I want to leave you with one of my, our favorite stories from the book. As Bert, and I, as Bert um, had mentioned that we really went down every rabbit hole and tried to get um, debunk all the myths. We were one of the few people to ever watch the Dick Cavett show where Rodale died. And oh, yeah. The, the stories in the book. And it's amazing. But once and there, there's two quote urban legends that were just so good we we hope they're true if they're not they're great reading so we all remember the great comedian joe e ross mm -hmm. car 54 ooh, ooh. yes well he was not doing well and he was playing third rate nightclubs and at this point he was that would that would have been a treat he was now playing condos so he's playing the Oakwood Apartments sure. for a gig for a hundred dollars. Wow. Bert, you want to finish our story? Well, it's actually sort of a short story. He was uh, he was doing his act in the community room of, of the Oakwood when he collapsed about halfway through the show and died of a heart attack. And because of that, his latest wife, when when they after they brought the body away, his latest wife went up to the manager to get paid. And the guy only paid her half the money because he wow. only completed half the show it's astounding i mean you know the again <laughs> getting back to the uh the dick the dick sean story just the the chintziness of people yeah. I, I i'm reminded in, in in and i know we just said we were going to go but i'm reminded of of um the with that story of henny youngman you know getting accosted in an elevator on a way to a gig and they paid him 200 bucks to go and appear at somebody's party in the hotel I love that. But but before you guys go, I mean, I don't want to get into the whole park your carcass um, story, um, but the, the two different reactions that both uh, Albert Brooks and and Super Dave, uh, uh, Bob Einstein, had towards their father's death on stage. Talk a little bit about that before you go. I think that's kind of a fitting way to close this thing out. I'll give the Albert and you can give the um, Super Dave or Bob. Yeah. 
Um, you know, Albert always said, you know, first of all, Harry Einstein, his real name, was yeah. not in the best of health yeah. for a long time. He, but earlier that year or late the year prior, he started to come back and became a favorite at the Friar roasts sure. and functions. And everyone loved him. He, he literally stole the show. And, and at this particular show, um, you know, the, he, he killed him, you know, to use a show yeah. business expression. And Albert has always said, isn't it amazing? My father didn't die on stage. You know, I'm, I'm sorry. My father didn't die on the way to the show. My father, he completed his act. He got the last laugh and took a bow. That's a, you know, what a great way. He went out with laughter in his ear. So that's the way Albert sure. thinks of this. Now, Albert was, was the youngest of the brothers. Yeah. Where, you know, his brother was older and it was a very difficult period. Bert? Yeah. Um... Bob Einstein, Super Dave, was was really traumatized by the whole thing. And he couldn't say what he would tell the story and people would say, well, you know what? At least he died doing what he loved. (laughs) He'd say, say, really? (laughs) Yeah. Um, What what does your mother do for for a a living? Well, she's a housewife. Oh, great. So wouldn't it be nice if she's home and she's in the kitchen and she's cooking or doing the dishes? And I'll come up behind her and shoot her in the back of the fucking head. And at least you can say that she died doing what she loved. He didn't. He never bought that. He never. Oh bought my that. god! Yeah, it's it's it is it is it is it's it's tragic. But you know, you yeah. laugh. It's you do right. Hundred percent, like, guys. And if you and if you go to our website, there's a link to Thank that you. recording of Parky Carcass, and it is some of the funniest, you know, five or six minutes you will hear by a performer yeah. and Art Linkletter, you know, says, I don't know why this man is not working. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better exit sure. line. Abs- absolutely. I'm sorry, Jeff. Uh, why don't you guys uh, promote the website? Well, the, the, the show, sorry, the show won't go on.com or, or died on stage.com. It will get you the same place. We also sadly are, are keeping tabs of performers who die yeah. on stage. We actually, the performer died on stage just this last week. Oh no. Uh, in India. But, okay. you know, it, the, the video has gone viral. You, you know, the gentleman was playing with an orchestra, finished his, completed his song and then collapsed. Amazing. That's one of the, that was actually one of the, the good things about the pandemic and the lockdown is yeah. people stopped dying on stage. We sure. were, when the book came out, one of the issues we had was that people kept dying. We had to keep updating yeah. the book. Yeah. Um, and, and it's it's dropped off. But now, again, we know that we're back because people sure. are beginning to die on stage. Sure. <laughs> The stories are happening. So, uh, yeah. the gentleman, go, go, yeah, check that out. The show won't go on, uh, dot com. Uh, Jeff Abraham, uh, Bert Kearns, thank you so very much for joining me. Today. Truly our pleasure. Thank our you. Our pleasure. <laughs> Great.